Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Michael Richmond, who is a writer based in London. And if you happen to have Twitter, he is at Sisyphusa. And I showed your work to Tiso because honestly, like the way you write about anti-Semitism, anti-Blackness, anti-racism, particularly over the past few years. And I also follow you on Twitter as well. Like I have learned so much from you. Um, I definitely think I've been on a journey over a sort of a two year period in learning about the relationships between anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness. And obviously like I have read Franz Fanon and I always kind of didn't really understand like how he was making those connections but now I definitely do and it's quite I don't know it's quite exciting for me not because of the fact that I now understand how these two things are interrelated but because I feel like I can be one of the people that you talk about in your articles that can help politically educate people about these relationships whereas before I don't <laughs> think I could do that so thank you so much for writing uh, it writing this stuff I don't also think that's show. true Chantel I think you guys have been politically educating a lot of people with your podcast so but that is that's cool to hear that and I think that it's partly because people have not have not spoken about them on the same terms before like people haven't spoken about different forms of racism in the same conversation enough that they need to be discussed together. Given right now, the language that people are using are, is a language of race and racism. So anti-racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Blackness. These are becoming like the common vocabulary right now. People are using them and not really understanding what they mean by them. And I think your work right now positions people to be able to say, yeah, is that what anti-Blackness means? That's what anti-racism means. But it's uh, very handy. It's amazing. Great stuff. Man. Oh, thanks. I agree with you about that people not understanding, but I think it's also just that they're contested terms. Like mm-hmm. that basically there's there are battles going on all the time about how to define anti-Semitism, how to define anti-racism now, right? That's part of what, what I was interested in writing about is be- because, you know, most people claim to be against racism. The forms in which anti-racist action can 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 happen are completely like wildly different from each other. So that's that's something that like we should be paying like more attention to how we think anti-racism should be done, how we're looking back on on historical forms of anti-racism and also what's been happening over the last few years and thinking about what's, what, is an, what is effective anti-racism and what isn't. We're going to talk about two of your articles today. One is titled Anti-Racism as Procedure and one is titled on black anti-Semitism and anti-racist solidarity. And just beginning with um, the anti-racism as procedure one first, um, I just want to read a section or two sections, actually, just to introduce the listeners as to what how we're going to be framing this discussion. So Michael says, at the end of October, Great Britain's Equality and Human Rights Commission published their report on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. The report states that the investigation has been prompted by growing 
public concern and about the Labour Party's handling of anti-Semitism, which had grown since 2015. And in this article, you coined the phrase anti-racism as procedure. And you talk about this being, or you define this as being, this is anti-racism as procedure, a search for legal and bureaucratic fixes to a localised outbreak so that a never clean institution can be given a clean bill of health again. Mic drop, Michael. Let's end the podcast there. Boom, you're done. You solved, you solved the problem. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Reading this back and thinking about anti-racism as procedure, it really helped me sort of have an internal critique with myself about how I have romanticised quote-unquote anti-racist legislation within the UK context of so thinking about race relations. I try my best to sort of read about history and anti-racism but sometimes you do kind of think well overall that was a good thing and particularly if you have like family members that have navigated housing at that time but it kind of like creates a disjoint between the context the continuation of for example, issues of housing and racism. Just wondered if you could just talk a little bit about this article. I wrote for a Jewish publication in the US called Protocols, and they approached me. A lot of people were looking at all the kind of discussion that was happening about um, Labour and anti-Semitism and Jeremy Corbyn for many years. And people, I guess, from the US, Jews from the US across the, the political spectrum were reacting to it themselves in different ways. I remember being in New York like a few years a few years ago when this stuff was first happening and I was at a Jewish museum and all of the newspapers along the side were just like Corbyn anti-Semite so it like it really had was like it was a big deal in the Jewish kind of news over there this publication protocols they they asked me if I'd um, write something that was specifically to do with the EHRC report and around the issue of how Britain does anti-racism. And so for me to like, to understand that, I wanted to go back and and look at the origins of this institution, the EHRC. And I kind of already knew a little bit about it because because of stuff that I'd read from the IRR and and stuff that Savannah Dan had written about some of the, the earlier incarnations of this kind of, um, this kind of body. It really does... Um, justify all of Sivan and Dan's scepticism about about how these kinds of bodies worked in the 70s and 80s. Basically, it went through various iterations before it got to the EHRC and you, and you see it kind of transform through Labour, Tory and new Labour governments. It emerges from these kinds of race relations industries basically it's a race relations kind of thing where they would set up kind of boards that like decided on what things were discriminatory what things weren't you know the the race relations acts of Anandan said like they're always coming out sort of at the same time as as immigration control legislation so it's like it's part of this process in the 60s and 70s where you have militant movements you have black power movements you have movements around post-war immigrant communities um fighting against you know color bars and fighting against street racism and fighting against immigration controls that are being introduced and part of the solution that the state comes up is to have immigration controls to say right the problem the, the problem not just 
the problem here, but the problem, you know, there's kind of a growing consensus in Britain that the problem is black and Asian immigration full stop. If we stem the tide of immigration, then we'll give race relations legislation as a kind of sop to immigrant communities and say like, all right, you, you know, we can't keep on letting people come, but we'll give better kind of slightly better conditions on some anti, anti-discrimination kind of things. You get this kind of development towards the EHRC, which is basically quasi-government. It's still appointed by the government. The forms that it takes, it's like you sometimes will have like black or Asian members elected to the board, but really it's continuing to be majority white. We saw David Goodhart got appointed to it not long after this um, decision to show, you know, what kind of politics there are in, in this kind of thing. But for me, it was it was about trying to kind of show this became the kind of race issue of the last several years the biggest race story in mainstream politics like the one that that had the most consequences for the people involved you know it had more consequences for people in the Labour Party than than Windrush had for for government ministers a huge story in the the 2019 general election it was something that were where people were urging people to vote the Conservative Party because the Labour Party were racist right so it was like a big part of the discussion about racism and if you read the document it's a very long report. Its formulation of racism is exactly what we're talking about in terms of procedure. It decides that racism is things that people say, like mostly online. Most of its kind of um, data is, is from seeing pe- what people say online. Um, and it holds the Labour Party responsible for people doing things under the auspices of the Labour Party. So people with enough power, so like elected councillors, elected politicians, things like that. And out of them, it found two people guilty. There were lots of probably ordinary members that they um, were saying had had said um, anti-Semitic things online or had, you know, supposed had harassed people. The overall kind of basis for the EHRC's kind of definition of racism was that basically Britain is an overwhelmingly tolerant place, that racism comes from extreme behaviours, extreme attitudes. People who can do it are an aberration from the norm of, of society. And it kind of fit into what was kind of a, a typical way of looking at anti-Semitism, which is that most people look at anti-Semitism or a kind of common view of anti-Semitism is that it comes from the extremes, that it's the extreme left and the extreme right, that they're the anti-Semites and that people in the middle um, and the liberal liberal state and stuff like that are, are the clean ones. Along with Alana Lenton's Why Race Still Matters, along with discussions with Aaron Winter, is it helped me to understand this term that you phrase anti-racism as procedure and actually the people that implement anti-racism as procedure don't actually care about the racially minoritized group or the ethnically minoritized group they're saying that they do care about so I'm thinking more sort of individually now like come into terms with kind of what happened in the Labour Party thinking about 2019 um, general election after that um, Tiso and I have spoken about this on the show I felt like I had to do a lot of work both on myself and with people around me 
in thinking about um, racial hierarchies. For me now, I don't actually use that phrase racial hierarchies in this way to talk about anti-Semitism. What I do now and what this piece in particular has helped me to do is think about how non-Jewish people use examples of anti-Semitism and racism to say they care, but actually they don't and they're using it as a way for political power. can't believe that I wasn't able to sort of see it in that way before recently, but I admit now that I found it hard. I knew I needed to do work on my racial literacy and on myself and thinking about it in this way, but having scholars like yourself really break it down it is yeah help me what your term michael uh, anti-racism as, as procedure is quite incisive because when people use it as a top-down individualization of racism leave the system in place i think when people are doing that they do it from a place because if they admit that the system is wrong where do you go from there it's a form of self-preservation almost if i don't do that I actually admit that the system is corrupt the system has to fall apart and that is not in the, in the interest of anyone it's the only yeah. way it can work. Paraphrasing the work of Dr. Carmichael here, it's the idea that if I admitted this system is institutionally racist or corrupt in any way, shape or form, then the whole system has to be, be torn down. So, yeah, I think it's a very helpful tool. I think, yeah, like I think actually both of your, um, of what you've both just said is kind of made me think in terms of like Chantal, you saying that you, you couldn't, you hadn't necessarily spotted the kind of discourses of like, of kind of appropriation, the way that kind of non-Jewish people have felt so comfortable in recent years to speak on behalf of Jews and to say like they are the fighters of anti-Semitism, like that's that's a lot of people have worn that as a kind of badge of identity almost to say like, you know, I my my identity, you know, often kind of just like white European folks, uh, non-Jewish folks, just saying like, you know, my identity is that I support Israel or that I defend Jews um, is, is, a, is a form of projecting a particular kind of definition of Jewishness onto Jews or to, or to try to say that, that this is a universal form of Jewishness, that, like, that either like I'm projecting this idea of Jewishness as being kind of representative of, say, the liberal centre, neoliberal kind of Blairism, like, which, you know, a lot of the kind of big fighters within the whole battle in the Labour Party was like the Labour right really taking on anti-Semitism and saying that this is like, you know, suddenly they all really care about racism, right? Uh, but other people can do that with taking on the defence of Jews as a defence, as a kind of proxy defence of Western civilization, defence against Muslims, defence against black people when they position black people as inherently anti-Semitic. It is this kind of discourse of, of appropriation, which, of course, is present in lots of different forms of racism. But I guess in some ways, there's, there's particularities, like with all different forms of racialization, there's historical particularities about how these things function. And, and you know, what we're talking about in really is, is philo-Semitism, the idea of kind of, um, of like adopting a kind of love of Jews or Jewish people as a kind of, as a proxy for a different kind of um, political end that they have. And that that's quite common in the history of um, Jews. It's quite common in terms of um, 
you know, differential power relations, that Jews have often been less powerful in European contexts, that they've often been a kind of main minority, minoritized population in lots of European societies. It shows me that like what Tiso was saying about kind of anti-racism as procedure, as, as a kind of self-preservation, is that the, the kind of work that the EHRC does with their report, which by the way, I, like, I, I, I should say, if I haven't said it already, that I'm not someone who, who's ever subscribed to the idea that there's no anti-Semitism on the left or the, that there's no anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. If anyone's read anything that I've ever said, then that's obviously um, not the case. But in terms of the way that this report and the way that this politics has been mobilised around Jews could never have happened with Muslim people. Like that could not have been, it would not have worked in the same way. Um, and that's because of the specific discourses that you're able to mobilise around Jews to defend certain types of politics that just don't fit with the current racialization of Muslims and the role that Muslim, like anti-Muslim racism plays within British society. The fact that it's a form of state racism. If you were, if you went back 120 years in Britain, you have a very different kind of anti-Semitism as well. You have very different material conditions. You have very different. 120 years ago, Jews were the the equivalent of today's, you know, asylum seekers, migrant workers. This is what I try to say, like, the presentation of Jews, in, especially in the British context, it's like in the 1945, somehow Britain saved the Jews. But if you go back to, like, the, one of the first pieces of immigration legislation is the, the Alien Act of 1905. The same arguments that get deployed about how they don't speak English around here anymore. That, that, this is the same argument they deployed to the Jews the Jews, but also deployed when I was growing up, when the Bangladeshis came over, <clears throat> the same language. And so it shows you like what's really changed, like the system that's in place that kind of flows into the lifeblood of the area. It's it's more than just individuals, but it's, it's also more than just the state. whole Satan thing that's alive and it's always very dynamic and very changing. I think what's really interesting about what Michael um, has just said and Tiso, your response, is the lessons for political education for those of us that are trying to contribute in this way, in a meaningful way. Thinking about the importance of context and the changing nature of race and diff different processes of racialization in certain, in certain moments is integral to understanding how we can both gain solidarities, build movements, but also truly reckon with how the state the state has been relatively consistent. It's just chosen different groups to to target. And actually there's so many things that we can learn um, from past in thinking about um, the contemporary moment. And I know, like I say, I do try and say this, put my hands up to this a lot on the podcast like I definitely sometimes pay into this these presentist notions of racialization and I'm trying to work against that but but I think what Michael Michael's work really pushes us to do this because you are constantly thinking about how we map the past onto the present and obviously we've spoken about you've spoken about Sivan Anden and the Institute of Race Relations big up IRR um no that's true like uh in terms of like um, constantly um, looking to history. I don't, I don't know how I became so interested in history and race, like because, I, like I said, to you I've not I've not studied in like formally. 
because you are a social being interested mm. in your social the social reproduction of your social relations yeah. we are you're of course it makes sense that you are I think interested that's true, in it. but i think yeah. that, that that's not true for enough people on the left though is no it? exactly yeah. exactly naturally people tend to gravitate towards history and race together right so because it, it, it's the only way it makes sense right so you see legacies and stuff but what what the pushback is is that when people talk about especially in terms of anti-blackness they want to draw a line so i talk about race and history together they will also do that as well but they all say well i don't i didn't own slaves at the same time talk about history but not at the same time dismiss it and the same thing with, with jews and the holocaust right so the holocaust becomes something that comes uh, memorialized and talked about in a certain way but at the same time people want to talk they stop talking about that but not about the long histories of anti-semitism within europe hmm. so for example when i talk about uh anti-semitism in europe and i say well did you know that uh, i think it was edward the first edward the third kicked the jews out and they didn't mm-hmm. return until oliver the cromwell so it's like a space of three to four hundred years there's no jews yeah. in, the, in, the, in the uk yeah. And about that period, they might say, well, the Spanish were very, very bad with the uh, Reconquista and the Jews, but not England. It's about how how history is memorialised, like you said, how history is talked about. And that's something that is like so present in all the struggles now in terms of like um, statues and in terms of like um, the way that basically like struggles on the ground are, are have forced um, discussions about the basically the the kind of racial capitalist origins of of british mm. modernity of 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 the nation because history is of the nation in so many in so many cases like good history is not trapped by national boundaries but most history is about what the nation tells itself and mm. and that definitely comes up with with what we're talking about a lot because the the way that people talked about history from different points of view around the issue of anti-Semitism and how it's, as it's been so, so publicly discussed in the last few years is, is through these contested histories that I have to say, I just think are all completely wrong. Like you had, you had this, this battle of people on the the labor left saying that labor is an anti-racist party. There's no anti-Semitism on the left and then there's never been any anti-Semitism on the left up against, you know, this notion, this kind of post-Brexit notion of, like, Blairite cosmopolitanism where, like, everything was all, all like, nice and uh, colourblind and post-racial in, in the Blair years. When you grow up, like, working class, right, and you do experience, like, the small, small benefits of for example new labor it yeah. might you, you kind of have like a, so many blind spots i'm happy no. to say i'm on record to be of, of apologize and redress those but i reckon i've sure. probably said at some point that i think labor's anti-racist obviously it's not right so it's your lived experience here so yeah. listen yeah we're growing up in a different age we're not we're not from our parents generation or, or like even for me because being a bit older so the, it seemed a bit more extreme so when I start going up, all my friends are truly mixed, man. We're truly mixed. So yeah. you, you don't see those barriers. So even though I'm walking around with skinheads, right? But they're a lot older. But I don't really care because they're my pals, right? As a young kid growing up, I'm seeing these images of white supremacy on TV, but they seem a distant memory because the people that are helping me, the people that are my pals, the people I'm playing Transformers with are white people. The pe- These are my friends. So I'm not mm. really seeing it and I don't really see the politics. So your lived experience is that almost that colour blind yeah. that utopia that we're talking about, right? Especially in certain spaces, like 
if you like I, I went to comprehensive in in north london the projected idea of multiculturalism was very kind of lived it was a lived multiculture right paul gilroy kind of thing and it was there's nothing wrong with like celebrating the fact that that there were really good that there were really good aspects to like what things were like when we were kids compared to to others and that and that you um, directly benefited from that and that that's great that is such a good way of putting it and I just wanted to say that I think that one of the things that I've had to fully reckon with is that mine and my mum's material conditions basically changing overnight was at the cost of a state-sponsored campaign of Islamophobia that has made the lives of Muslims in Britain like for so many years like, unlivable yeah. It's coming to terms with the fact that being working class, white and black family, whatever, like Tony Blair coming in and actually making those changes, particularly yeah. if I think about school and living that. But then as an adult, unlearning that actually like if I just focused on individualized positivity of my life and what happened, then who am I leaving behind? Which narratives are missed from that? What else was happening then? And that's, so that's what's what really lots important. Of do. Lots of yeah, they do. do that, right? And it's it's so it's so dishonest. It's yeah. so dishonest in my opinion. Because mm. actually, when you when you get challenged on the things that we're talking about and you say, but what was happening, what was happening down the road, or what was happening mm. over there, and you deep it or you read about it and you find out and you choose to ignore that, that's a choice better scholars than me have written about this thinking about Aaron Winter and Aurelia Munden as well like them talking about apathy as a political choice like this this gap between understanding the context of our material conditions and then seeing what was happening what happens to other groups at the same time people don't do that do they well not enough people do that and you were a kid though (laughs) No, I know. I know I was a kid. No, but Michael, I was a big adult. Well, I wasn't a big adult. I'm like 18, 19 being like, yeah, New Labour was great for me. Mm. God, I got reading books. I got my GCSEs. Yeah. I got my, do you know what I mean? Like that's. But that's part of the calculation it's... that governments make. Like they yeah. try, they try to siphon off sections of the population and say, all right, if we, if we give a little bit of what, of what these people want, then we'll be able to get their vote. And then it doesn't matter about, you know, the fact that, New Labour made about five or six different immigration acts that attacked asylum seekers in all different new ways. Um, and like you said, in terms of Islamophobia and stuff like that. But then it's like, there's some, there's some aspects of British state sort of racial violence that are just incredibly consistent. You know, if we, look at like, if we look at deaths in custody and disproportionate um, violence against black populations, that stays pretty yeah, consistent. Stays moving, yeah. Um, since David Oluwale and before and that's like there's aspects of it which stay the same and then, and then these other things which are shifting and which we have to constantly be um, aware of and that's like part of what has been a really difficult thing for the discussion around anti-semitism it's that it's been difficult for you know I've watched comrades who are racialized in different ways um, have to kind of you know, really feel pretty gaslighted by by the the way that there's been so much online focus about anti-Semitism from such powerful... When the boycott, the kind of performative boycott happened after Wiley's tweets, you had government ministers, you know, the prime minister tweeting about it and saying that they were going to boycott 
one of the biggest social media things, you know, affirming this idea that anti-Semitism is like uniquely ignored, uniquely kind of allowed to happen by by social media companies and other people saying that it's uniquely done by the left and all these kinds of things. That mass outcry over that, this anti-Semitism in, in the media, like, for example, I remember when Jeremy Corbyn, when he's, when he's accused of anti-Semitism, the people saying that Jews are going to leave the UK if he gets into power. That, that was so mad that when black people, some black people see that, they think, well, well, what about us? And this is how we start to develop these kind of these arguments about these hierarchies of race. And it's like a race to the bottom. Who was treated bad the worst? You get into yeah. these kind of crazy, mad arguments, man. You can see how it happens. And I feel mm-hmm. like it's so hard for, if we're thinking about anti-blackness, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism together, like if you think about these things together, it because we're racialized in different ways, it is really hard for people who are not engaging and reading in this way that we are about these things about how to explain these things to come to really like race the bottom conclusions and one of the things that we talk about in this podcast is to try and find ways to bring people with us try and not do the grandstanding over things and trying to create understanding around context around race around class all these all these sorts of things i wanted to come back to the point you made michael about your friend's feeling gaslighted around how anti-Semitism was spoken about online, etc. I guess one of the ways that I've, though people that come to me in that way, that are talking in that way, I've tried to develop my language to say to them, look, the people that are saying this, I don't believe in the grand scheme of things, actually are thinking about the material, everyday social relations and lives of the Jewish population in the both the local and global sense because if they were then surely we would be seeing a decline in anti-semitism if not if anything we're seeing a rise in it mm. so even you'll see you've got these two things that that are happening at the same time you've got as you said an appropriation of outrage around anti-semitism um you've got people that are talking very very clearly about their experiences about anti-semitism and then you've got those two things that I've just described are happening at the same time as people not actually paying attention to the everyday lives and material class racialized position of Jewish people. Yeah. It's like it's trying to explain to the people that feel gaslighted that, that I hear you and I understand it is it sometimes on the surface level it can be really hard to not see what you feel your community are, are experiencing or have experienced in um spoken about in the same way however do not be fooled Mm. this isn't because they necessarily care about the experience of jewish people and that anti-semitism is going to be taken seriously this is something i've really been trying to kind of put across the last couple of years because um i think it's partly the way that we experience things obviously Tiso is a very smart man. He's not on Twitter, but the rest of us, <laughs> we experience a lot of these things in these really heightened kind of combative ways where different things can, um, you know, come to be more, come to be more representative than they should be. So like, I think, you know, you got into these very kind of combative situations where you had a lot of people who were like, you know, online Corbyn, Corbyn supporters who, um, you know, like a, a lot of them um, are comrades, but like they know that I've 
I've not I, I can't stand the Labour Party um and that's never been my politics but um but you get into the you the whole thing became this huge tit for tat thing more prominent Jewish figures on on Twitter um who represented you know particular reactionary positions or formed for, like um notions of um, what is and isn't anti-Semitism, which are contest deeply contested um, definitions, um, and and uh, you know sometimes to do with Israel and sometimes not to do with Israel, um, and they came to be representative of Jews or or the re- the literal representative bodies of Jews came to be representative of Jews because they claim you know the Board of Deputies claims to speak for the Jewish community, and now that's a that's a really important aspect of how Britain deals with race in this, like historically is that um, the the construction of community leaderships is, is a constant feature of how Britain manages race domestically. And it draws on its experience of colonial, like kind of sort of management of, of, um, of colonial populations and um you know what what you have in the british case of of jews is a much older much longer tried and tested structure of community leadership the board of deputies is hundreds of years old right if you look if you compare that to like i don't know muslim council of britain which is itself is part of that kind of his, very recent history of new labor trying to kind of construct community leadership out of nowhere music muslim council of britain was not this like organic structure it was something that was kind of partly pieced together by the labor party wanting to have a, rep, a representative as a form of kind of social control and this is like really common in in terms of like how these things have happened you see you if you read the kind of you know, you know all the kind of anti-racist um, literature from the seventies and eighties. You have this constant um, struggle internal to racialized groups, where you know the Asian youth movement is partly a reaction against the fact that the older generation with, within the Asian, you know, the Asian community is not representing what the what young people want. The young, the younger people in the Asian youth movement wanted to go and and defend themselves on the streets against racists and they were being held back by by the old generation these these dynamics are constantly happening within racial communities like racialized communities but when we talk about the jewish community or the black community or the asian community it's always in terms of kind of homogeneity it's like you know that there's that every, everyone there is basically the same and that they all think the same obviously that's not the case with jews like it isn't the case with anyone else um but 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 people with certain kinds of uh views were more likely to be to have a voice but i was gonna say but isn't don't you think that's consistent with representative democracy whereas we we, we vote people to kind of vote one person to represent this vast group of people that all have different views right and i think this is the only way the, the system can understand difference it elects one person to represent to kind of cross 
again, this is at the heart of the kind of enlightenment way of thinking. It's a universalized way of thinking, but it's, there's this tension between the universal and the particular, right? So I have to have this law that applies to everyone, but to apply it to this mass of difference. So this tension is not, it's never been resolved. And like I said earlier, we lurch from one form to the other. So we're either talking about the nation or we're talking about the universalism or whether it's the community or whether it's the kind of moral value we have to one another outside as, as human beings. This has never been resolved, but we jump from one thing to the other and it doesn't fit really well. And I think we struggle with this tension. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like, um, the history of Jews in, in Britain, it's that these kinds of um, communal institutions are partly there to pacify class difference within the community, partly to kind of have like religious, like the kind of some kind of clarity over what what types of uh, worship happen. But it's also because Jews don't have the vote, right? So Jews for for centuries didn't, didn't have the vote and couldn't be elected to parliament. And so it's a kind of like a community within within the nation that can't be um, fully integrated, but it, it kind of reproduces the same structures, the same hierarchies. If you look at the, they, there's a what's called a Jewish board of guardians developed in the 19th century. The board of guardians is the same like the board of guardians that existed everywhere else in the country, which is basically to administer the poor law, right? It's a form of social control for middle class and richer Jews to have some form of domination over poorer Jews, uh, the same way that the Board of Guardians was for, for uh, like, you know, the, the general population and the working class. But I think the second and third prime ministers, I can't remember who they were, I think they were brothers, Pelinim, I think, I can't remember. They were talking about the naturalisation of Jews and it, because it, they were talking to the, the international Jew people had money the finances mm. had money they weren't talking to the poor Jews who had no money they became part of the system and this is why it's really important Michael everything you've just said to think about class within our analysis of um, racialized minorities so if we're just going back again to the UK context like I'm sat here nodding at everything you're saying in the context of thinking about the Sewell report that's just come out so you've got some quote-unquote respectable um, black and South Asian elite academics space yeah. people whatever you want to call it like <laughs> telling us is the end of racism it's the end of racism as we know it that is about in your words pacifying the class differences within just thinking about black just thinking about black people here but amongst black people like that, it yeah. is it's so it's so consistent anti-racism as procedure yeah. And it's but, and it's I, just nationalism. It's just pure. Yes. It's just pure nationalism. Like if Sewell is just a straight up <laughs> British nationalist who yeah. who's like right, you know, Patriot. Why, why why are you talking down Britain? Why is everyone talking down Britain? Actually, we're the we're the the least racist out of everywhere. You know, that's his <laughs> that's his kind of argument. It's like a sales pitch almost. But like, if you look at the Jewish Board of Deputies historically, at different points in history. When sections of the Jewish population were under attack, the Board of Deputies chose the side of the British state, or they they parroted the interests of the British state. They said, you know, Mosley's fascists were targeted East London, which was where where working class Jews lived. Um, This was for years. It wasn't just Cable Street. It was happening for years. People being attacked in the street all the time. And 
Board of Deputies was like, its approach to racism was like, to say, no, Jews aren't all like what, aren't all like this, Mr. Mosley. Actually, you're factually incorrect. And this is, you know, that's the kind of anti-racism is like, you know, fact-checking. Of, of a fascist but also that the law of the land is the most important thing so like the on the day that cable street happened it wasn't just mm-hmm. you know the labor party and all the political parties that, that that said stay at home don't defend yourselves it was also it was the board of deputies as well right it was the, it was they were defending the position of what they thought was should be the position of Jews in Britain. Hundred percent agree. I think people need to get away from the idea that because I look like you, we, we share the same interests. So, black faces in high in high places. That was mm-hmm. a phrase I grew up in. Like, if I could get inside there, somehow change the system. Equally, people people who are racist will say, "Well, look, T. They've said this to me, like T. But because he said it, there can't be racism." And I'm like, "Bro, like, <laughs> like, like that, that, that doesn't work. It doesn't work like that." I think what's really interesting about using the Battle of the Cable Street as an example um, and also thinking about, yeah, we mentioned the Saw Report, it's really good to map these things out in obviously the context, but also during these particular moments and particular times because we can see we can see the people that are resisting these things whilst also seeing the people that are appeasing these things. And I guess one of the things, I don't know if I'm in too many echo chambers, um, big up echo chambers. I love them. No jokes. (laughs) But, um, But from what I can see, the things we're kind of critiquing now, thinking about quote unquote representation politics in that um, when we see racialized minorities, when we see black people, when we see Jewish people sort of acting as agents of the state, I do feel like we are seeing more kind of interrogation of that process, even just thinking about like kind of mainstream um, journalism, publications, like even the news to an extent. I do think we are seeing a kind of, I don't want to be presentist here because obviously there's always been pushback to this stuff, but I'm seeing it more amongst people that I feel like I wouldn't have necessarily seen it from 20 years ago michael and t you're both expert historians am i being presentist or is there something that is there something is something new afoot maybe because um yeah maybe because we're seeing for what quite a novel thing in british history which is um you know racialized uh tory ministers um and that maybe in other times it's been more palatable for for like kind of racialized representation to be happening under the auspices of the Labour Party um, and and in America, the Democratic Party, and that those things were more kind of natural because there were actually struggles from below to get into those um, spaces. But if you read like, if you read the kinds of things that were being written by um, in, in like um, Race Today and, and Savannah Dan in the mid 80s, there was pretty scathing of black sections and so there was like still a lot of kind of critique of of just going down that road. But that's, mm-hmm. I think, personally, I also think that, like we were saying, that there's this constant process of um, of like these the dynamics of social control of, of the state trying trying to to have to apply some kind of social control onto like um, in a, like migrant or racialized communities. I think that you have a similar process whereby you will always have some people going into political parties and and you know and it's like it's partly that it's like on the one hand don't don't 
you know, you don't want everyone to be, partly people were more unified in other periods because they were unified by this, by being super exploited as a kind of, a kind of sub proletariat, right? By, by the, the, the way that color bars were maintained by white unions, the way that, um, that people couldn't do certain jobs, the way that people couldn't were, were being locked out of educational opportunities. There were structural reasons as to why uh, why most people of color were working class, and part of the changes that have been fought for have allowed a, a certain amount of class ascension to happen within within Britain within America, um, and that complicates people's ideas of of like racial identity and of how to compose groups politically you know because you do you you suddenly get a few racialized people in both societies thinking like oh well i've i'm successful because all because of myself and all because of how good i am and therefore i'll be you know i'll be a republican or i'll be a tory or whatever um and that's that's just part of like the process like i don't know how we've just been talking for ages about how racialized communities aren't homogenous and that's that's just the reality for example when you have someone like obama reach the like he he reaches the pinnacle right so we have a black man in what the west deem is one of the most racist places in the west people think obama he's got this so he, black people thought he's gonna do stuff for black people when he was just doing stuff from his political and social position, right? But T, don't you think there's something really interesting here about liberalism? Because actually, I do think that... Um... Let's, I'm just talking. Let me just talk in a homogenous way, even though we've been talking. We've been talking against it for <laughs> now. But let me just think about. <laughs> let me just think about in terms of like what becomes palatable. So actually, if you think of Quasi Quartang and and them and Black Etonians, right, particularly in the, mm. in the Tory Party, I do think amongst some of our um our diaspora that people will see kind of through him and see and understand what he stands for. When you get someone like Obama, that you get the kind of liberal. Um, black leader that actually can be more damaging um, than the quasi. Obviously, I'm I'm not making a new argument here. I'm just sort of giving an example of things that people have said for a long time about the problems of liberalism and how poisonous and scary it can be. Like actually, Obama, as you said, as you said, T, he's he's he can be fucked it up because actually he's so, like the he's an orator from like he's got a story like he's, it's a, a, he's a man he plays that game man he makes a deal yeah. with them right there's a deal with it so he won't bring up this shit in the past but he yeah. said like, deal with me now so it's almost like a blair kind of thing where he says like mm. yeah i'm gonna i'm jumping into your program but i won't bring up this shit in the past so he don't talk then, but now he does now he's got no he keeps talking about listen but Stuart hall i think it's from like 2006 or something there's a video of Stuart hall saying i'm suspicious of barack obama and it's so, like so it's so powerful because it's just <laughs> correct um yeah i don't know how we got talking about that this is a quote from michael in movements and organizations that are ours we can make mistakes do the political education and grow together we can hold each other accountable it is struggle and only struggle that has shown the capacity to force change from the white supremacist state Social movements, class struggle and insurrection are where hope lies. And solidarity is all we have. That's powerful. That's someone that's not been corrupted by academic writing there. (laughs) That is is the clarity. Yeah, yeah. That's just me having, having argued with 
um, people that have gone the Labour Party route for so many years. And it's like, it's not, for me, it's like, it's not about kind of tit for tat or anything like that. It's, it's, it's literally like what we've just been speaking about, which is, can you imagine a situation where the Labour Party had people that were clo- closer to being comrades to, to your idea of a comrade than, than what they've just had right now with Corbyn and Diane Abbott, right? Look at, look at what Corbyn's position was on policing, on migration. Like even Diane Abbott was talking about gangs and borders and this kind of stuff. This is, this is the structure of, of a politics that wants to take over the state. And so I, that's why I just think it's about, it's about building and growing and supporting movements, which is what's happening right now. People are doing it right now, even in the middle of a pandemic. Like it's um... No, definitely, Michael. And I do have to say that if you are on Twitter and not following Michael, you need to follow Michael because I'm not even joking. I'm not even just bigging you up, right? I think that I have very much learned to stop trying to find ways of not just not I don't mean condoning or ways of existing amongst that kind of labor sphere like I've tried like I've gone out I've not knocked doors I've engaged in the discourse I don't I'm not doing it anymore I'm not doing it like the labor party is not for me you're writing and hearing your your sort of critique of the Labour Party has really helped me do that obviously I know I'm still going to be in solidarity with people who are up for doing the Labour Party stuff but it's not me now like I've realized that once people come to the realization that party politics is not just failed on a local level but on an international level on a historical level how do you leverage for change, right? So when we've leveraged for change in, in the modern democratic sense here in the UK, it's been through trade unions or, or, or grassroots workers trying to take these rights. The, the establishment never offered these rights, right? The only time party politics is was felt when we kind of retake, when we retake the system. But this is the, the, the system is aware of that. So since the French Revolution, they've always been on this or they're on the guard for this and they're prepared for this. And so what do you do? So do we get engaged in party politics to get change? Or do we have to leverage it for ourselves? If we do it ourselves, it's painful and often results in our deaths. So where do you go from there? That's a good point. It's a tension. Mm. It is a tension. I guess, um, I guess I'll sort of, instead of saying that I'm not about the Labour Party, it's more about realising why am I going to die off the hill of defending the Labour Party? Not that I actually did defend them massively, but I did sort of say, look, these are things that we can do via the Labour Party, but I'm not really up for that anymore. Sorry, Labour. If you were ever going to be kind of hopeful about the Labour Party, I can understand why that would have happened in the last few years. Like lots of people kind of rushed into it and really tried to do, and like I, I have no beef with the people that did it in a way that didn't, you know, um, act, actively screw over people that some people did who were trying to climb their way up. But like people who were just like trying to make it be as good as possible, I, under- I understand that impulse. I think there's such a big section of us kind of like mid to younger millennials, especially that just put a lot, obviously in Gen Z as well, massively, but we just put, we put too much of ourselves into that project. I, but yeah. I get it. I know why I did. I don't regret it kind of feeling of the of the defeat is going to be is going to hugely inform whatever follows right because you have basically 
I was involved in 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 like movements and stuff before Corbynism came along, and basically lots of those movements kind of collapsed back into the Labour Party, and and now lots of people utterly disillusioned, like you know, not just by the election defeat, but by the the feeling of being crushed by by the internal structures of the Labour Party and by internal enemies and and just a sense of complete kind of frustration and injustice. Um, and, you know, where those people go next is going to be um, an important part of, of kind of movement building next because, like, a lot of people, a lot of people um, who were, like, you know, Want, you know, who wanted a Labour government. Um, ha- like a lot of the, those people that I knew online, online and stuff had really good politics, like in, and and could just as easily kind of move into other forms of political action. But um, it's trying to kind of build things that can grow and and can can force consequences on on people in power and and that's like not an easy thing to do when they're literally like constructing laws to to stop you from even doing a protest so it's like you know this is the this is the terrain that we're operating on now it's a mad terrain God, we're gonna wrap it up there guys that's <laughs> Thank you so, so much for joining us, Michael. That was absolutely, I've learned so much. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, And we hope you can come back on the show again. Oh, that would be amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Brilliant. Um, Listeners, thank you, obviously, for listening and your support. Patrons, there'll be another episode for you over on the Patreon. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.